0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. I'm uh-huh. sorry. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with the latest Ion Travel podcast. Our conversations this week focus on Pride Month and the evolution of LGBTQ travel and the travel experience. Joining me is the founder and CEO of The Points Guy, Ryan Kelly. Then maritime historian and cruise expert Peter Canego gives us more than ship history. And batting third, Gary Leff, who does the View from the Wing website deconstructs the true story of the airline frequent flyer programs. You might not like what you hear, but you need to hear it. First up, Brian Kelly. My next guest, uh, one of our favorites, had him on the show just recently, but had to bring him back because, you know, in the age of uh, quarantine, he took his very first flight (laughs) just two weeks ago on United Airlines. He's the founder and CEO of The Points Guy. Brian Kelly, how are you, sir?
2: I am doing great. Boy, did it feel good to get back in the skies.
0: (laughs) Tell me about that experience. I mean, from start to finish.
2: Well, you know, I, so my flight was out of Newark on uh, 6 p.m. on a Friday, and I actually drove my car because I wanted to see, you know, with Ubers, and I wanted to minimize my interactions with other people. So I drove, no traffic, and I got a parking spot on the first level right next to the elevator, which I don't think has ever happened in the history of <laughs> parking at airports, especially on a Friday. So, you know, took an empty air train to the terminal, and at 5 p.m. on a Friday, it was empty. I was the only person going through TSA. So, on a Friday? I, on a on- Friday?
0: on a Friday. On a
2: Friday. Never again in my life will I probably experience that. But uh, so, you know, the, the downside is there was no full TSA pre-check. You know, I got the little card where I could keep my shoes on, but, um, you know, had to take everything out of my bag. And I was so rusty at security. I, I think my bag got pulled out twice. I think I had a bottle of water or something else <laughs> in it. But uh, I didn't care. I was just happy to be there. You're such a you're
0: such an amateur.
2: I, <laughs> I always make fun of my employees when they travel with me. Like I make it a point if they've got the bottle of water, you know, the rookie mistakes, and and I, of course, always end up doing them myself. So, of course. You know. Okay, now
0: tell me, you boarded the flight. Well,
2: actually, before I boarded the flight, so basically, Newark is a ghost town. There was only one in their grand bazaar food court. There was a single uh, restaurant, or Pat Lafrita Steaks, that was open, and it, it, you know, so it was a pretty long line. So, I highly recommend if you're going to travel. And not every airport's like this, by the way. You know, Charlotte and Miami are jam-packed, from what I hear. Um, But, you know, especially New York and L.A. uh, are much less crowded than than other airports. Um, But, you know, boarding starts 45 minutes prior to departure, and they board from rear to front now. So even though I was in business class, I boarded last, which, frankly, I'm fine with as long as I get my overhead space, you know.
0: uh, You're a tall guy. You're a tall guy.
2: As, li- as little amount of time as I can be on a on a metal tube, the the better. Even as much as I love flying, so um, but yeah, you, I mean the plane was spotless. You know this, I flew a seven sixty seven there, and it had been on the ground for I think eleven hours before my flight, which as we all know is unheard of. Unheard of. of. Unheard of. Yeah. So the plane was clean. They flight attendants were friendly. They gave you a Purell wipe when you came on the plane, just so you could do an extra wipe and. To be, tr- to be truthful, that was the first time I'd ever wiped down a seat. I'm, I've always been a, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Um, Peter, do you wipe <laughs> down your seats before you sit down?
0: Absolutely not. I just never did. <laughs> but, but now yeah. I will, I'm sure. I'm sure I will, you know.
2: It was kind of therapeutic in a way, just making sure you get the belt buckle and the screen and, you know, you kind of feel like you're doing your part. But, um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, the United, it was pretty full in business class and uh, I think there were only 20 people in the back. So uh, there were no issues with the crowded flights, but you know it is. I know I'm hearing tons of stories. You know, American and United are selling flights jam packed. So I really, you know, for anyone listening, if you are going to fly, you know, Delta and Southwest are the ones that are you know taking the hit on their profit to make sure there's no middle seats. And even yeah, Delta, well,
0: Del- yeah, yeah, Delta's, Delta's capped their their capacity at sixty percent, I believe, and they block the middle seats.
2: And they blocked 50% of seats in first class, which is wild. I mean, they are just losing tons of money on that, but it's very pro-consumer. I give them credit for it. You know, as the flying public gets used to flying again, I think they've taken the conservative approach and, you know, it's going to be a hit to their bottom line now, but I think their Delta has done a really good job with, with COVID and cancellations and refunds um, as well as now uh, with the blocked middle seats.
0: And, and uh, tell me the truth now, Brian, did you wear your mask the entire flight? I did.
2: I don't find it to be that annoying. You know, I got this great mask that I tie. I've got a huge hood. It's a normal mask that, uh, you know, I, I even ordered some large masks that uh, that go around your ears. and My ears are like bending forward. Uh, so I got one that I can tie in the back. It's like this denim from Citizens of Humanity. So a friend of mine was like, they make, it's normally a nice clothing line that they are now making these denim-ish face masks. And it's great. You know, I, I untie uh, half of it so it like, can hang down in front of my face. So if I want to take a drink, I, I don't have to fully bring the mask down. You know, it's kind of like giving me most coverage, especially when I'm in my seat. Um, but yeah, I mean, I slept with my mask on. I loosened it. And I slept on my side anyway, and I so I personally don't find them to be uh, that intrusive. and it's pretty clear they dramatically help the the decrease of spread of you know germs. So uh, and I, I highly recommend people find a mask that you are comfortable with before you go um, and just get used to it. it's It's not that big of a deal in my opinion.
0: And shifting gears just for a little bit because we are celebrating and commemorating, if you will, Pride Month. Uh, you know, last week on the show, I talked about the intersection of Black Lives Matter and the travel experience. We have to talk about this intersection of mm-hmm. of LBGTQ and the travel experience, because, you know, as a, as a gay man, you've seen everything evolve. You've seen mm-hmm. it from a different perspective. You've seen. The prejudice you've seen the bigotry you've seen the stereotypes and the, the stereotypes and the assumptions that people make all across the board. But you've also seen certain things evolve way beyond what happened back in 1969 and Stonewall.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to note, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, the Stonewall riots were in large part uh, started by black trans activists. Um, so the black community has been a, intricately woven into the LGBTQ experience. And I think it's important that we we recognize that and also support them and what they're going through. I think collectively equality isn't you know, we're not all equal if just one group of people is. Um, is is uh, given more rights. So it was a great week for my community um, with the Supreme Court ruling that it's not uh, legal to discriminate um, based on um, being LGBTQ. So that that that's awesome. But there's a lot a lot more work to be done. I know people always ask. Uh, you know, I'm always torn as a traveler because I do believe I travel extensively throughout Africa. I love the Maldives, you know, uh, yep. Middle but East. Let me,
0: let me let me stop you right there, Brian. You know, you talk about Africa. There are African presidents who mm-hmm. consider homosexuality a crime, a felony.
2: Absolutely. You know, and that's the hard part is I try not to judge a people by their president, because I certainly don't want to be judged by ours, <laughs> you know, like that. That's my view. So I, I struggle because I don't want to say I'm not going to go to this country um, granted, I think when I travel throughout Africa, I'm always very I'm observant and respectful. I'm not going to force, you know, I'm, I'm going to always understand. But I do believe the more people you meet, you know, and, and the LGBTQ rights have evolved over the years because we're visible. And, you know, people are afraid of what they don't know. So yeah. I don't believe in staying home and, and judging all these countries that aren't where we are, because it's taken a long time to get where we are in the U.S. So I I just, in general, believe the more we travel, the more people see different cultures and races and sexual orientations. You know, the better we come. But it is tough. But, uh, but I and I, I would you know.
0: and I would suggest, and you know, you're probably better, you know, better prepared to tell me about this. But I would suggest that when you go to those African countries, there are people there who are going through what you went through, but 20 years ago, but they're just still going through it now.
2: 100%. And and just being there for those activists I've talked to across the globe, actually, one of the, my uh, organizations I'm most proud of my involvement with is a, an organization called Rainbow Railroad. And you can actually donate your frequent flyer miles to them. And they actually help people who are at risk of imprisonment and even death. Um, you know, they're one of the worst countries for LGBTQ rights is Jamaica. And uh, so we actually bring people at risk of imprisonment or you know, people who have been hunted down and we, we get them to safety using frequent flyer miles and travel. And, and it's an amazing organization. I highly recommend people look at them.
0: We could always say we're going to vote with our wallets and not go, but you take the other approach.
2: There's, there's a lot of unintended consequences to that. So in talking to the activists on the island, they said, no, you know, the hotels, the Hiltons and the Marriotts in Jamaica are the safest place for gay people and lesbian and trans people to work. So by boycotting, we actually are hurting our own community. And a lot of the, um, you know, so I generally, fundamentally don't really believe in the boycotts because we inadvertently hurt our own people and that, you know, dialogue and change happens with open borders. And sometimes it can be hard to see, but, uh, you know, in general that, you know, the 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 flow of people and ideas across borders will, will make progress um, for the people who need it the most.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I, I totally agree with you about that. If you take a look, it just doesn't even have to be recent history. If you look at history for the last 50 years, travel and tourism is one of the most effective tools of breaking down barriers, of opening doors. And without singing Kumbaya, because I won't do it on the air, but it does pro- it does promote a deeper understanding because at the end of the day, whether you're gay, you're straight, doesn't matter. We're all seeking common ground, aren't we?
2: absolutely and you know i you know fundamentally i do believe we are we do become a better um people when we realize look if you go to china or to india the people are all the same we want the same things peace security a good meal um and i i know i've become a much you know not perfect but you know my travels have really opened my eyes and and understanding poverty and you know we grow up with the media image of you know africa And when you go and actually visit the rich culture and beauty of that continent, um, you know, it it just makes you think a lot differently about people and and hopefully break down those
0: stereotypes. Speaking of stereotypes, what's the worst stereotype that you were able to turn around based on your own travel experience?
2: Oh, man. I think, you know, the Middle East, uh, it's tough. You know, even when I fly Emirates, my, a lot of, you know, especially my older, Gay followers who have gone through the civil rights movement say, how dare you support an airline like Emirates? It's owned by, you know, the UAE. And they've got some, you know, especially on the books, they've got tough rules in some countries like Qatar. But, you know, the the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, countries, you know, there is huge change that's happening in Qatar, in Doha, and they have more extremist rules on the books. But the actual reality on the ground is much different. And tourism has played a huge role. In changing that. So, yeah, I mean, I think Middle Eastern and Muslim countries, you know, as I was a young gay man, I thought that I would never be welcome there. But it couldn't be more uh, further from the truth. So, you know, I think in you know the Maldives in particular, people say, why do you go there? They're the most beautiful place in the world. And the fact is, you know, the, the Waldorf Astoria in the Maldives. Is its own little nation state, right? Like you know, Malé in the main island, and you know, it is a, a stricter government. You know, government, but it's that's not the actual reality on the ground. So I think the stereotypes when you paint a broad swipe of a country or people or religion, uh, you end up just hurting yourself because you limit yourself to some of the most incredible experiences in the world.
0: So what you're really saying, Brian, is when you're looking for sanctuary, it's the Waldorf.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it's an incredible resort. I the Maldives are actually opening up now. I'm, I'm, they uh, are. I, I think my first international trip, I think is going to be soon. I'm going to be going to Antigua, uh, get a little scuba diving. And have you ever been there?
0: I have Antigua and Barbuda. You bet.
2: Yeah, I'm excited. I've never been. And it's one of the first Caribbean countries to open up. So uh, I've also got St. Barts and, and Puerto Rico are also opening uh, this month. So. Got cut my eye on the Caribbean this year because Europe's still touch and go. Those rules keep changing minute by minute.
0: Oh, hour by hour. It's crazy. I can't keep up because, yeah. you know, they're going to change the rules and open, but not necessarily for us. You know, it's oh, it's I going w- to take... I was
2: booked to Iceland. I was supposed to be in Iceland and uh, booked on Iceland Air to land the first day, June 15th. And then a couple days prior, Iceland Air started messing with their schedules. And uh, we started hearing rumors on the ground that they didn't have the testing capacity. So... Luckily, I got all, the, all of it refunded, but, um, you know, international travel in summer 2020 is not for the uh, faint of heart. You've got to be ready to pivot and uh, hopefully don't book any non-refundable hotels. I think that's one of my main tips to people. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Hey, I can't let you go without talking about the project that you're supporting with homeless LBGTQ youth.
2: Yeah, you know. I came out when I was 22. My family supported me, and I think for this Father's Day, I want to highlight my dad has always been amazing. He actually was a points guy in the '90s. That's where I learned to uh, maximize points. But um, so but so many kids when they come out um, are unfortunately kicked to the streets. So this Pride Month, we are supporting myself. I'm supporting the Ali Forney Center in New York City. Um, it's a, a shelter for LGBTQ homeless youth, 90% of whom are. Uh, people of color, um, and we give life-saving housing, medical, social services. So really for those, you know, the young people, kids in their early teens who are on the streets, we are giving a second chance. And their track record and getting these kids up to speed, educated, and into society is amazing. So uh, on my Instagram, at Brian Kelly, I've got a link in my profile. I'm matching dollar for dollar up to $50,000. We're closing in on 10000 So Uh, If you want to make a small donation to homeless youth uh, this Pride Month, I'm happy to match dollar for dollar.
0: My thanks to Brian. Next up, my conversation with maritime historian and journalist Peter Canego on the evolution of cruising for the gay traveler and some of the lessons he's learned and the lessons you might need to apply. Joining me now, one of our good friends on the show. I can almost call him a regular because he's my resident uh, maritime historian, among many other things. uh, Peter Canego, how are you, sir?
1: Great, Peter. Thank you so much. Great to be on your show again.
0: And by the way, the last time I saw you, we were doing a piece for uh, my show on PBS, The Travel Detective, where we featured probably the oldest cruise ship uh still operating in the world at 72 years it's a ship called the astoria that you and i have talked about for years and both of you and i finally got a chance to go on her and it's a remarkable story which i'm not going to tell anybody now it's just too good to be true uh but uh you were the person responsible for keeping me informed so we could actually get our crew and do that story. Yeah, so, that, I'm
1: so glad I worked with Peter because of yeah. everything that happened just a few weeks later. Uh, I know. I don't even know if the story is going to come back and do her final cruise season at this point. It doesn't look too promising. So, I know. we just got in just in the nick of time.
0: We did, but check uh, check your local stations on PBS. It'll be airing on The Travel Detective. But let's talk about your history, Peter, because you started cruising at a very young age, uh, back at what, 1973? Well, my interest in ships
1: started around 73, but as a, you know, we didn't have a lot of expendable income growing up, so I wasn't actually able to take a cruise until 1980. Uh, in Hawaii on the SS Oceanic Independence, which I'm sure you remember. Beautiful old ocean liner. I do. uh, I do.
0: In fact, its sister ship was the Monterey.
1: Yeah, or the Constitution, actually. The Constitution,
0: right. Yeah. And the Constitution, I believe, was was the one that Grace Kelly, or maybe it was the Independence, one of those two ships, she did her honeymoon.
1: Yep, Grace Kelly. And she actually came back and christened the ship when the ship came back into service in the 1980s, um, so she had a great relationship with the ship, and it's in the film uh, in a Fair to Remember, and it's in the I Love Lucy episode with the ship and gets stuck in the porthole, uh, so the Connie had a lot of history to her.
0: You know, I first started, I mean, I've been a journalist all my life. I was a correspondent for Newsweek for many years, but back in the 80s, I started uh, specializing in doing what we're doing on the show today, investigative reporting about travel, and talking about the whole process of travel, and what I learned early on was the you know the, sort of the demographic and sexual preference makeup of, of the entire travel industry, and it was you yeah. know predominantly women, predominantly white women, uh, a large percentage of gays, and then me. That was that was it. Um, and back, <laughs> but 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 back then, uh, but back then, nobody talked about that back then nobody wanted to recognize that anybody was gay. I mean, you sort of thought maybe or, but but in terms of the actual process of travel, in terms of how you were treated, whether you checked into a hotel or were sailing on a cruise ship or getting on an airplane or even making a reservation was a totally different experience, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely,
1: you had to be very closeted for, you know, not just for social reasons, but for your physical safety, because there was so much hatred for towards gay people, and especially in the 1980s after the religious right movement came into force and the AIDS crisis, uh, it was just not a good time socially to be gay, and it was very challenging. There was a certain degree of, of sanctuary on ships because ships, and the whole hospitality industry in general tends to attract, you know, gay people. They, they're great at their jobs. They're not bogged down with families. They have expendable income. Uh, So they're an attractive demographic and gay people can be fun and they know how to handle themselves in social situations and they have a certain degree of culture, you
0: know, I'll tell you you a funny definitional story, Peter. And the story that I wanted to share with you, Peter, is there is a uh, a, co- a company in San Francisco or in the Bay Area called Olivia Travel? You may be familiar with them. And, yes, very familiar. And a, a, a group of gay women. This goes back a long time ago. They wanted to go on a cruise, and they wanted to, mm-hmm. they wanted to charter the entire ship. So yep. they did, and I forget the name of the ship, but it was so funny. Because here you have the officers and the crew of a cruise ship hearing that 500 women are coming on the ship. And they were like, well, they all had this idea that this is like the love boat on steroids for them. (laughs) Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, they realized that at about 15 minutes of boarding, that the women were there, not just for the experience, but they were also there for the women. Mm-hmm. And the crew didn't know what to do. They were apoplectic. And then something happened. And what happened was, and the captain later told me, he said, I had to change all of my my stereotypes. I had to get rid of them all. Because... <laughs> They were the best passengers we ever had. They were the best behaved. They were the biggest tippers. They were truly interested in the culture where they were visiting. They were truly excited about the ship, about the about the performances on board, about everything that the cruise provided. And that cruise charter ended up continuing for many, many, many years. It was their most exciting charter that cruise line. Ever had, and yet they were scared out of their minds at the very first moment that they saw it.
2: Yeah,
1: it's really it's it's so important that people who judge other people uh, have a chance to actually interact and and deal with, with deal with them in person. Then they find that all these stereotypes and fears that they have are really they're they're useless because people are people. They are not just a sexuality, they, they're they multifaceted. And if you find out they're actual fellow human beings, you'll find that, hey, maybe maybe I shouldn't discriminate, and I can learn something from them. They bring something new to the table. And that's very true with Olivia. But I, I think I might know what cruise you're talking about. I think that they were on the Stella Oceanus, that small sunline ship. That's right, they did a that's right. In the Greek Isles, and they went to Lesbos, and it was the first time a lesbian tour group had actually gone to Lesbos to actually... <laughs> (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute,
0: isn't that like Coles to Newcastle?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Uh, So yeah, it's, you know, and then they they also had, um, you know, for the guys, there was RSVP vacations. That started in the late 80s with a a cruise to uh, Mexico on the Enchanted Isle out of New Orleans. Remember the old Enchanted Isle? And that was very successful, and now we, we still have RSVP, there's Atlantis also for guys, and now it's just you know, they, they charted these massive modern cruise ships, 140 150,000 tons, and they packed them with, you know, big star entertainments. And it's quite a different thing from what it used to be when people had to just sort of hide in the shadows and, and not allow themselves to really fully express themselves.
0: Or to be but who yeah. they are. I mean, look, yeah, ex- my, my question is this, what kind of training... Uh, did the cruise lines have to do with their own officers and crew to make sure that, you know, they, they stopped the bad behavior on their part of those stereotypes? Yeah, I don't know,
1: Peter, that there was specific training, but I think they did give crew members and officers on ships before charters the option to not go, you know, just to sit that particular cruise out if they had a problem being with gay people. But from what I've read and from what I understand, that never happened you know they all just went and they learned and like you said uh the women were some of the best tippers and some of the most well-behaved people that the cruise line had seen up to that point and i think once they realized hey this is a great revenue generating thing these guys are fun these gals are great um let's keep doing this and i think it helped break a lot of barriers
0: to the point and you know where what on- we're the, the the when we get to a part where we don't have to label it when we yep. get to a part where we're not calling it a gay cruise, but we're just calling it a cruise, then we've made progress. Yeah, I totally agree.
1: But even on regular cruises, you know, they do have friends of Dorothy. You know, they got the in the programs. They've got the friends of Bill W. and then friends of Dorothy go meet at 6 p.m. and meet fellow cruisers, you know, today in the so-and-so lounge. So the cruise lines know that this is a good market for them and that they need to appeal to every walk of life to fill their ships and so i think we're a lot better off today than than we were 30 years ago when people had to really hide and use code words and do all that crazy stuff that society made us do
0: and you did that too i bet yeah i have to Uh, of course i mean
1: out of my own fear you know for safety
0: always happy to have peter on the show and if you're like me You could easily be a mileage junkie. But the problem with addiction, as it's medically defined, is that it's usually part and parcel with abuse. Gary Leff, who writes the View from the Wing website, joins me to tell you what you really want to know, maybe what you really even need to know, about how to be a smart mileage junkie with a minimum of abuse. Now, you know, if you listen to this show, that I am a frequent flyer. I'm one of the original road warriors. It's even in the introduction of this show, I travel more than 400,000 miles a year although maybe not this year by air. I was uh, one of the original members of all the airline frequent flyer programs way back when. I think my American advantage number starts with a zero. Uh, And the thing is this, we've become addicted to uh, the frequent flyer programs. Uh, uh, we, We try to get miles for everything short of breathing with the affinity credit cards. And depending on whose numbers you listen to, there are something like 23 trillion unredeemed miles out there that may never be redeemed and yet we still love earning those miles. The question that came up the other day and was reported by my next guest was unbelievable, and I had to get him on the show to talk about this. First of all, let me introduce you. Gary Leff, he writes uh, viewfromthewing.com, and he's been covering uh, frequent flyer programs for two decades. Gary, what was amazing to me the other day was there are two airlines, in fact, there are three that did it, but the two that amazed me the most was how American Airlines officially valued their frequent flyer program, their Advantage program, in terms of, a, of, a, of an asset. And then what United Airlines did to do the exact same thing to raise money.
3: Right. Peter, you know, we know these are valuable programs. They are, Frequent flyer programs are the most successful marketing innovation in history, really. For almost any company in the world, marketing is an expense line. For the airlines, marketing their loyalty programs They're a profit center, Um, and because of the difficult situation that the airlines find themselves in now, they're having to reveal a lot more about those programs because they have to uh, use the programs to raise money.
0: I mean, what's interesting to me is that I started going down the numbers, and it could be argued, please tell me if you think I'm wrong, but it could be argued that for some airlines, they make more money in, in clear profit from operating their frequent flyer programs do they make operating as airlines?
3: Well, and in fact, I'll take it a step farther. If you look at two thousand eighteen, is absolutely true. Uh, first half of two thousand nineteen also true. American Airlines, uh, you can reasonably say that they only made money because of the frequent flyer program, and that the actual moving of passengers and cargo, actually flying planes, lost money. Because if you look at their financial reports, their cost per Seat mile is greater than their passenger revenue per seat mile. Uh, you know it, it, their costs outweigh revenue even when you add cargo back in. It's entirely that frequent flyer program that was driving the revenue at America. Now you you wouldn't have frequent flyer revenue without planes, right? I mean you couldn't just you know quote unquote cut out the middleman and sell mile. But you know they've you there was something said many many years ago. When United Airlines filed for bankruptcy in two thousand two, sort of the first time that we got a window into the actual financials of some of the of their program, and it was revealed at the time that it was the only profitable part of the airline. And it was said because they got their some of their debt in possession financing from the bank issuing their credit card and ultimately exit financing from bankruptcy too. Uh oh, yeah. it said that they you know, that United had to keep flying to support the underlying credit card program.
0: And the same thing happened, by the way, when Delta filed for bankruptcy, their largest debtor in possession financer was American Express. And it was in American Express's best interest to keep Delta flying because they had co-branded their 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 credit card with Delta. I mean these everybody's like in bed with everybody else. But now let's talk about some serious numbers here. How much did American Airlines value their advantage program?
3: So they revealed that they they had it appraised. Had a range of eighteen to thirty billion dollars. Oh, amazing! Right, amazing. and if you if, if you look at American Airlines stock, right, their market cap is less than seven billion. Right, so you say, okay, now let's leave aside uh, their you know debt and or, you know the enterprise value. You the market cap seven billion. Right, you got eighteen billion at the low end for the frequent flyer program would suggest you know negative eleven for the rest of it. <laughs>
0: It's amazing. And then, what did United Airlines just do?
3: They just got a commitment to raise $5 billion in funding against the loyalty program. Right? So their they
0: mortgage the frequent flyer program.
3: That's right, for $5 billion.
0: All right, so now let's get that really down to what my my listeners want to know. How does this impact their ability to earn miles and to redeem miles?
3: Well, look, in the immediate term, you know nothing changes. In the medium term, members are probably better off because if United is able to raise plenty of capital, you say United is around a lot longer, right? They're a much more stable company because they have um, cash and we worry less about our miles. Although, frankly, even in the event of an airline bankruptcy, for the major airlines, I'm not worried about the miles. All the major airlines have flown through bankruptcy before. The miles have been fine. Um, over time, I guess I worry a little bit that you know they've got all this debt on the program, and the priority needs to be extracting cash in the short term rather than investing in the long term. But that's a problem that we're going to face with all the airlines right now as they're going to have to repair their balance sheets after we come out of these challenging times, right? So, you know, I I, I worry a little bit just as the program, but the airlines are also leveraged. It's not a great position to be in to make customer-facing investments. Um, But, you know, to the extent that it stabilizes the airline that's better for people whose miles are attached to
0: them. All right. Well, speaking of people who are attached to their miles, for anybody listening to the show, I've always said, you know, I don't really trust the airlines as airlines. Why would I trust those <laughs> banks? You know, why would you hoard your miles? You need to use your miles.
3: Absolutely. Uh, you know, like I've said this for 20 years and independent of any of the current issues or concerns is that. You know, you're never going to get a better deal than you will today with your miles. You want to earn miles and spend them in the current award chart or award pricing environment. And then you don't worry about what they do to change the rules or change the prices, because then you'll just earn miles with a rational calculation based on, you know, what the program looks like at the time and spend those miles.
0: And, Use them. Well, uh,
3: and enjoy you know, them.
0: It, listen, the one five-letter word that has to come out of your vocabulary when it comes to earning or redeeming miles is later, because the airlines reserve the right and exercise that right almost all the time to change the rules, up the eligibility numbers, and uh, make it difficult.
1: Look, after
3: the Supreme Court's ruling in Northwest versus Ginsburg, where they basically, the Supreme Court said, you can't uh, sue an airline based on a state court contract claim. Uh, something like, uh, you know, good faith and fair dealing. The American Advantage terms and conditions were changed to explicitly say that they had no obligation of good faith and fair dealing with their members. And so know,
2: they're, they're telling Whoops. you this.
0: So there's the message right there, literally in black and white. Uh, you cannot depend on the airlines not to change the rules. The airlines, not just United, American, Delta, you name it, they really are the printer of the currency. They're the bank. And they, and they make the rules when it comes to their frequent flyer program. So if you're listening to me right now and you've got a lot of miles, my advice is look forward here. Look to October, November, December, January, where they may not have uh, adjusted their algorithms to figure out who's really going to be traveling for the rest of this year. And you may find even much more award availability than you'd normally find and redeem those miles. Just get out there and do it. Right, Gary? Look,
3: when flights come back, they're going. there's going to be more seat capacity then there is passenger demand. You've got hundreds of planes for all the major airlines that are just sitting on the ground right now. So there, there, there are going to be more seats available. And when there are empty seats, it costs very little to the airline to give those seats away to frequent flyers. That's when the best deals tend to be around. We are going to see also I mean, a whole lot of frequent flyer promotions where there are opportunities to pick up tons of miles because the airlines can print these miles to encourage people to, you know, buy tickets and sit in seats. And we're, so I really do think that in the, in the short and medium term, we're going to see a return of briefly golden age of frequent flyer programs when they really were used to fill seats on planes, get people to shift their business to a particular airline for a particular trip where they're awarding miles for more than just um, credit card spending and other partner activity. United shared in their SEC 8K that 71% of the revenue of Mileage Plus has been selling miles to third parties. Only 29% of the revenue is attached to awarding miles for flights. That's going to change because they're going to start those printing presses of miles to <laughs> get passengers in the sky.
0: And by the way, Gary. I-,
3: yeah.
0: I was about to say, by the way, I looked at the uh, the 10K reports of the airlines. A couple of years ago and they actually boasted in the 10k reports that the actual cost to them to redeem a 25,000 mile award worked out to be 40 cents per thousand miles assuming the seat was not filled right that was an empty seat to begin with which meant their entire cost of of doing it was like ten dollars um, and that's amazing to me so the bottom line is that's uh, mafia loan sharks don't think that get that kind of return Um,
3: But that's also how consumers get value is that, you know, it would be a ticket that would cost potentially a lot of money, but it's a seat that once the plane takes off, if that seat is empty, the airline can never sell that seat again. So they might as well give it away cheap, uh, but in a way that doesn't take away from the possibility of selling it. It's price discrimination to their, you know, to a limited set of people. they frequent flyers who have miles, right? And the mileage program is getting a bulk discount from the airline because the mileage program is the largest buyer of seats. In most of the frequent flyer programs, you see about 7 to 8% of the seats on flights on average going to frequent flyers. Southwest is actually over 13%. And, Uh, you know, so they're buying a lot of seats, they're getting good deals. We're going to have more empty seats than we've had in years. So it'll be a good time to earn miles, a good time to redeem miles. But once the planes start filling up again, and airlines have printed all these miles, the only way to keep that in balance is we'll start to see higher prices for awards again.
0: Exactly. Now who, in your estimation, is the most generous airline in terms of redeeming miles?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of ways of looking at it because you have to say, you know, redeeming miles for the trip that you want. So if your goal with miles is to fly, you know, business class to Europe, you're not going to do well with Southwest's rapid rewards. But Southwest does fill the greatest percentage of their seats, uh, which are mostly domestic seats, uh, with uh, mileage tickets. So I think they're you know they're pretty generous for domestic travel, but that's it. but if that's not how you want to use your uh, miles, then it's not so good. Now I mean I, I think that United's access to awards on Star Alliance partners, right? So you can use United miles to fly Lufthansa and Swiss and uh, ANA and Thai and myriad other carriers. They have the most partners. Um, that gives you the opportunity to uh, get some of the best business class awards to Europe and Asia. Um, but I happen to like using my miles for international first class awards.
0: Really? I'm class. shocked.
3: Oh, gosh, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, there's so much value. I mean, in a million years, I'd never be spending $20,000, $30,000 on an airline ticket. But if they're going to you know, give it to me for incrementally more miles, I'm happy to take it. Um, and I've done the best there using American Advantage Miles, honestly. So it's okay, really so now, down to what, what is your reward goal?
0: Yeah, exactly. So now let's flip the coin. Who's the stingiest?
3: Overall, you know, of the major, the largest U.S. carriers, um, I have gotten the least value out of Delta Sky Miles. They have uh, done more than anyone else to drive towards Members obtaining an average value for their miles. You can often get, you know, domestic awards for the fewest miles. You know, ten thousand miles for a one-way yeah. ticket, five thousand sometimes. But those are your fifty and hundred dollar tickets. You can pretty much always get about one to one point one cents a mile out of your miles.
0: What's interesting now, of course, so many complaints. Every uh, every airline has a policy now that you got to wear a mask on board. Uh, so there's some airports you have to wear a mask just to get to the airport. But what happens on the plane? How many complaints have I received, has the DOT received, uh, and have the airlines received from other passengers and flight crew members saying that, you know, once they're up in the air, people are taking their masks off. And people are saying, well, what can be done about it? The, the, the flight attendants don't want to become sky cops uh, in this situation. Plus, they don't have a lot of things to stand on to enforce it for one other reason. It's called an FAR, a Federal Air Regulation. And for those of you who don't know what that is, Here's a federal air regulation. You gotta fasten your seatbelt. Your seat has to be in the upright position for takeoff and landing. And if you refuse to comply with that order, then you are in violation of a federal air regulation and you'll be met at the gate by federal air marshals and it won't be pleasant. But there is no FAR from the FAA on masks. So one by one, the airlines are trying to figure out how do we make it really mandatory? And Gary, um, you know, you saw the story Earlier this week, United Airlines said, "Okay, if you don't comply with the mask rule, we're going to put you on our no-fly list." Uh, in fact, they even had a uh, they even had a, a special little terminology for it. Uh, and I don't even know if that's going to work.
3: Well, the problem is that masks themselves are controversial. They've somehow become political, and I, I mean, I, I, I get it in a way because there's been mixed signals and mixed guidance. From the people we trust normally, the, from the CDC, for instance, early on in the pandemic, we were told, don't go out and buy masks. Uh, masks aren't necessary. That's changed. And frankly, the best research has convinced people that masks do limit the spread of COVID-19 and can limit it substantially. Um, that even you know moderately effective masks, even cloth masks, um, can reduce the you know increase growth of the virus by forty percent. Uh, so research is showing that this is very helpful. But people are feeling unsure of the guidance and not trusting leaders, and it's become really political. And gosh, you know, conflict in the skies was already a huge thing with people from all sorts of different you know backgrounds. It's such a small D democratic um, environment, uh, you know, with increasingly, you know, affordable travel brings people from all walks of life and, you know, whatever baggage they have at home, they bring into the sky and we're all in a metal tube together. And now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and it becomes a flashpoint. And the airlines say, gosh, we need to make ourselves comfortable, our employees comfortable and other passengers comfortable that we're doing everything we can possible for safety. And that includes, based on the best research, masks, And so we need everyone to do it because it's not just about protecting yourselves, but protecting everyone else around you, because even if you don't think you're sick, you could be pre-symptomatic, you could be spreading the virus. So, you know, it seems to me pretty reasonable, but not everyone feels that way. And it's hard. As you say, it's, you know, the FAA doesn't have a rule on this. It's not clear that they have the legal authority To 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 promulgate one, which is why the um, most recent stimulus package that passed the House of Representatives actually included language to uh, create uh, the legal authority to require masks in flight. Um, But airlines are imposing these rules, and people are still not wearing them, and the airlines don't want conflict. They don't want to put their flight attendants in a position where they have to uh, confront passengers. They don't want to divert planes. And so they say, we will potentially ban you from the airline. And American and Delta have now said something similar to United. Uh, we'll potentially ban you. But what happens is we do that later. And <laughs> it's Surprise. hard. So, you, yeah. you know, you, you land Um, the person has been on the flight without the mask on, they land, they might even go get on another plane on a connection and do it again. So what the airlines aren't doing is meeting the plane when it lands and saying, okay, on the spot, right, we're going to enforce the rule. We sort of enforce it later. Yep.
0: I mean, and and the thing is when they say they might ban you, no airline is going to tell you at this point how long you stay on that no fly list. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, double dare. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because as more and more people fly uh, and more and more people who are nervous flyers in this this environment and just think about it the airlines have now taken alcohol off the planes why not my thanks to Gary Leff, Peter Canego and Brian Kelly and thank you for listening for more interviews with the world's leaders in travel as well as answers to your travel questions Make sure to subscribe, rate, or review the Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
1: Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week.
3: We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner.
1: Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you
0: would struggle
2: to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick...